Welcome, everybody, to Soccer 101. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and this week we're pondering the big question that get, gets asked about every four years or so. Why would a country want to host a World Cup, and what all goes into actually making it happen? Here with me to get into it are Joe Lowry. Hello, Joe. Ahoy. And Graham Ruthven. Hello, Graham. Hello, Taylor Rockwell. I know it's just the recording delay, but there's always a moment when it sounds like both of you are surprised to hear your names read aloud. Joe, were you surprised or just giving it a a dramatic pause? I didn't know I was on this show. What are we talking about? I don't know what's going on right now. Most people call me G-Money, so hearing my actual name is... (laughs) I don't believe you and refuse to acknowledge that comment. Gentlemen, (laughs) let's talk World Cups for a moment uh, because we obviously have one looming, which begs the question, why would a country want to host a World Cup? What do you have to do to make it happen? How do you win a bid? Bribe people. Uh, But if you don't bribe people, how else can you win a bid? Uh, Many other things that won't involve a fire truck of lawyers. Graham, let Let's start with the basic question. Why would a country mm-hmm. want to host a World Cup aside from getting to hang out with all those many, many fun FIFA executives? <laughs> and they are fun, fun, I've heard. So this is this is very base level stuff, but let's start at the start, I guess. So the Men's World Cup is the biggest event in sport and the Women's World Cup is a, a big event, a, event as well and is getting bigger and bigger, bigger with every iteration. Um, so that is naturally appealing. The last World Cup in Russia drew 3.5 billion viewers from all over the world. Uh, hundreds of thousands, sometimes millions of fans visit host nations for the, the duration of the tournament. It's an opportunity to put your country in the world's focus for a whole month. And in soccer nations, which is uh, at this point, it feels like most nations around the world, it very much is the focus of basically public discourse for a whole month. So there there has to be some value there. Um, if countries had collective egos, then hosting a World Cup would be good for that collect- collective ego. The case is also made that hosting a World Cup can be of great financial benefit. Um, and that is often how bids are justified sometimes this materializes and pans out. So one of the best examples I could find was at the the 2002 World Cup, which was hosted by Japan and South Korea. It was reported that 31,000 jobs were created as a result of hosting that tournament. Um, Other estimates say over $1 billion was was generated and the GDP of uh, both host countries were boosted after the tournament. Mm-hmm. There are other cases, though, many other cases, where there hasn't really been any meaningful financial benefit to hosting a World Cup. South Africa, for example, spent around $4 billion just building new stadiums for the 2010 World Cup. That's not even counting infrastructure projects and everything like that. Mm-hmm. And now many of those stadiums in South Africa yeah. are unused or underused, underutilized. And Brazil is another country fairly recently that spent a lot of money on hosting a World Cup in 2014. And that never translated into much in in the way of a financial benefit either. So there is no guarantee that you will make money out of of hosting a World Cup, but you might get that ego boost for a month. Yeah. Uh, I think that Brazil, I think it was the Manaus Stadium is the one that most recently was used as like a bus parking lot and nothing else. I'm not even sure there's a team playing there. But Graham... 
Is there another thing, and if only there were like a convenient, simplified term for it, where like a country can host the World Cup, like maybe they don't have a great image around the world, and so they host a <laughs> World Cup with this idea of, but look how great it is. Everything's very efficient. We're all very welcoming and open. Isn't this a fun time? Don't you want to come here again? It's it's almost like they're washing away yeah. all of that that sort of those issues with sports. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Grant, so I can't think of what it that. should be called. Yeah, I'm going to say right now, guys. I'm going to yeah. pioneer this term. I don't know if it's been said before. I'm going to call it sports washing. I'm just going to go out on a limb and make that jump. No, obviously a very uh, big thing, and I do feel like increasingly a thing that goes into uh, nations yeah. considering whether or not they want to host a World Cup or a major tournament like it. Absolutely. So money isn't the only reason a country would want to host a World Cup. There can be a geopolitical benefit. Let's say, let's let's keep it diplomatic. Well, actually, we don't need to keep it diplomatic, but that's another term for it, geopolitical. Um, and that is particularly relevant with the, the Qatar World Cup, which is going to start in two months. Um, Qatar, which has had serious mm-hmm. issues with human rights is using the World Cup to sports wash, sports wash excuse me, its reputation on, on the global stage. To, to boil it down, countries that host events like the World Cup are taken seriously. They have stature in, in the corridors of, of power and it makes it easier for them in those corridors of power to hide the things that would ordinarily stop them from reaching those corridors of power. Um, Russia also used the last World Cup. It's been a bad time for the Men's World Cup with the last two iterations in the last two tournaments but Russia also used the World Cup in a slightly different way but they used it to flex their political muscle in in 2018 with Putin keen to show a a global audience and also domestic audience that part is important important with Putin that uh, Russia was a superpower and obviously we have seen what's happened with Russia since that World Cup so the World Cup will always be more than just a football tournament there are there is a good side to that there's a side to be cherished and the fact that it is this this carnival and and jubilee of getting nations from around the world all together and fans and players and teams, that's the good side. But on the negative side, countries will always look to capitalize on that. Yeah. And I mean, that is a thing that we've seen historically, obviously, sports washing more of a modern conversation, but you've got fascist Italy hosting the World Cup and trying to kind of give that regime legitimacy by making everything look modern and well-built and look how wonderful everything is and a lot else going on behind the scenes. Same with Argentina in the 70s and the military junta there. So it's not a new idea using the World Cup to sort of improve your image. Where I think it, it takes a like a divergent path these days is you have, again, like autocratic regimes in Russia, and I would say in uh, Qatar as well, then also sort of utilizing it to change the way people understand the country. Because the narrative at the time when Qatar was awarded it is like, they don't have a football tradition. They're not a footballing nation. That's not really what it's about. It's about being a tourist nation and showing people that... Millions of people can come in and and be tourists, but it's all really wonderful. And I think that's, we've talked about it before, that's the pivot towards tourism dollars. That's what Saudi Arabia, I think, is doing as well. So it's not a new concept. It's just a really troubling concept. And it's one that Joe prevented us from really wanting to cover this World Cup in person because it seems impossible to extricate the the two. You can't have the 2022 World Cup and all the enthusiasm about it without also focusing on how uh, Qatar has gone about making that World Cup happen. Uh, No pressure, Joe, just throwing to you to summarize the 2022 World Cup and sports washing. It sucks. That's that's what kept coming through my mind. I mean, that's that's just the, the truth here. It makes 
talking about something that should be so fun yeah. really sucky sometimes, and it makes it difficult to figure out how to strike the balance. And we, we've talked about this on TSS before. We'll talk about it on TSS again. I'm guessing it'll pop up on Soccer 101 again throughout the next couple of months and even after, right, as we head into the next World Cup and the next one. These are, are really challenging issues, and I don't know that I'm going to break any new ground here by saying it sucks, but that that's very, very clear. That day, back in what, was it 2010, 2009? I forget. Where it was yeah. 2010, I think, I think where so. both Russia and Qatar were awarded, doesn't matter, right in that, that stretch, were awarded the, the 2018 and 2022 World Cups. That's a, that's a tough day. Like That is a day that's going to live in infamy because it is the, the biggest and brightest recent example, at least, of the, the corruption and, and the reminder for all of us that money is, is really the only thing that matters in this game, or at least to the, to the decision makers in this game. So, yeah, it sucks, and I'm, I'm thankful that there have been other World Cups that maybe this hasn't been as prevalent, but also the reality is this is this is kind of different shades of this we see all over the world, and we see it in all sorts of different parts of life. And as troubling and as challenging that is as that is, it is sort of the unfortunate reality of our broken world. Joe, thank you for that. Having thrown a very difficult question for you, I will now ask you a somewhat more straightforward one, I think. Uh, what goes into the bidding process for hosting a World Cup? How do nations bid? How do they win those bids? Okay, so this is a long process, which is is right, isn't it? Because there's a lot that goes into creating a World Cup bid. This is a big event. It takes years and years for this to happen. It's also changed a little bit in recent history as well. But the general procedure I'm going to start with, and then you and Graham can fill in whatever gaps you feel like are there. FIFA invites its member nations to submit bids years before the tournament, right? So we're talking like a decade. We're talking nine years. We're talking seven years. We're talking a long time before the actual World Cup is going to happen. So that's why I mentioned back in, at the turn of the decade for both Russia and Qatar. That's a long time that they had to decide and submit bids. FIFA, uh, interested parties, then submit those bids. They have about six weeks to put together the applications. So when applications go in, they have to, to fit a couple of different criteria. There's a few different ones, but a couple of them are risk assessment, which has to do with the sustainability, the human rights impact, and the financial Lol. outcome. Yeah, right. Very, We're very sure those are being looked at very critically. The other one is the technical evaluation report, which has to do with infrastructure and commercial amenities. Also, just again, we're clearly seeing that these are strict requirements that have to be followed and cannot be impacted at all by briefcases filled with valuable items or watches. Uh, but anyway, countries submit, FIFA member nations submit their the applications. You can work in groups. We've seen uh, 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 Belgium, Netherlands, Luxembourg bid sort of developed in the past. We've seen other joint bids. Obviously, 2026 is a joint bid between the United States, Canada, and Mexico. There can be some flexibility in how these bids are designed, how they're put together. Usually you're getting 50, 60-page reports. I believe the United Kingdom or England put together a 67-page report and submitted that to FIFA in their application about how you know hosting the World Cup in England could help soccer as, as a whole. I think it's sort of Ryan Bailey propaganda, but whatever whatever that looks like. There's a long process. <laughs> teams are uh, teams. Na- nations are filling out these massive applications. They're submitting them to FIFA. FIFA then goes on a series of tours. After that, FIFA has inspected the the different bids. Some bids have likely dropped out by this point, either because they don't meet the requirements or because they've decided it's not feasible. Political unrest can sort of affect some of these things. And then the the end-all and be-all of this is that FIFA member associations then vote on who should host. Now, it wasn't always like this in, in every member association getting to vote. It used to be that you needed, I believe it was a committee, and you needed 12 votes from that committee to make it through. 
that's now changed such that you need a majority among FIFA member associations uh, and you need those votes from the people that are voting for these bids to be able to make it actually to the final stage of hosting the World Cup. Then there's more. FIFA goes around and looks at host cities, blah, blah, blah. That part is maybe not quite as complicated. They pick the host cities. But at the end of the day, long process, years and years and years, interested parties have to fill out the applications. It goes through, et cetera, et cetera. Vote ends and there's lots of money that's been exchanged. Oh, wait, can we say that or no? Yeah, we can say sure. that, right? We can say that. We're yeah, going to say it. I think so. Yeah. I, I think when you've got... Uh, a significant percentage. I always say nine of the ten. I'm not sure if that is 100% true, but I think it is nine of the ten who awarded that Qatar bid have been uh, involved in some investigation into uh, corruption or bribery or have been charged. So, yeah, I think you could say that, Joe. Graham, the other frustration that I tend to have with bids is that they tend to be very extravagant. They tend to be very over-promisy. Like, I, I always... Uh, cite Japan saying that they would put hologram games in like every nation around the world. That felt ambitious <laughs> when they were trying to win the 2022 World Cup. Especially, yeah, especially, oh, was that for 2022? I believe it or, was. Sorry, what, right, okay. I was going to say for 2002, ah, that was especially yes, ambitious. Yes. I don't even think the iPhone was out back then. They were going to put holograms around yeah. the world, but yes. Yes. For, still ambitious for 2022. Still ambitious for sure. And And to me, it sometimes feels like the important thing is to win the bid and you promise whatever you have to promise to get that win. And then after that, FIFA don't really want to lose face yeah. uh, and have to say, like, never mind, Japan uh, can't do anything they said they were going to do, so we're going to take it away. It feels like once you win, it's sort of yours. Is there like a, a set criteria for changing the bid or is it basically once you've got it, it's yours to do with as you please? So it's not yours to do as you mm-hmm. please with the, with the hosting. Obviously, there is some autonomy in terms of uh, kind of local infrastructure and things like that. But if you want to make some fundamental changes to the bid, my understanding is that that needs, needs to pass in front of the FIFA Council. And if they vote it through, then everything's good. And of course, this is a relevant talking point because this happened with Qatar. Um, the original bid for the Qatar World Cup proposed that it would be a summer tournament as it has been for every men's world cup and there was going to be all sorts of innovations from artificial clouds to cooling drones i made that one up but you you didn't know that initially did you that's how ridiculous it was that cooling drones sounded like it may have been involved in the qatar bids and obviously none of those things happen and the whole tournament was shifted to the winter which hadn't happened before and so that has uh, grated with a lot of people because obviously a, um, a lot of the, the member nations or all of the member ma- nations voted on the basis this would be a summer tournament. Would they have won the bids if that hadn't been the case, if it was a winter tournament? Maybe because there, obviously there was alleged corruption going on. But in principle, it's it seems a little unfair that you can change the bid so fundamentally at a core level like that. But there is a precedent for it. And it's really up to the FIFA Council to, to decide what is uh, passable. I think any extended conversation about the FIFA Council and FIFA operations in general is going to make me feel slightly unclean. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a break. I'm going to go do a very, very quick shower. And then we're going to come back to just talk about like <laughs> stadium requirements, infrastructure needed, some of the FIFA provisions, and maybe some of the best and worst World Cups that we can remember or have read about. Uh, let's take a break. Get back to that very soon. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right. Shower complete. I'm feeling better. Let's talk about what are the actual requirements for hosting a World Cup aside from uh, letting FIFA have jails and control of all the sponsorships. See, I'm right back into it, having freshly gotten out of the shower. Uh, Joe, talk to me a little (laughs) bit about the stadium requirements. Let's start there. Okay, so you need a lot of different stadiums here, right? So you need to have stadiums also with specific capacity. So you need 12 stadiums that each have a minimum capacity of 40,000 to 80,000 seats. Now, this is going to be interesting to see how things change as we move into bigger and bigger World Cups, and certainly this will change on the women's side as well, I would imagine, over the years. But right now, 12 stadiums that each have a minimum capacity between 40,000 and 80,000, with the idea that you need an 80,000 capacity stadium to, to host the actual World Cup final. So that's one piece of this. Then you back away a little bit further from the games themselves, and you think about training. So each team needs to have its own base camp training site. So they need to have enough training sites to house every single team in the World Cup. FIFA also requires that each stadium have an airport nearby, and each each airport must have a minimum capacity of 1,450 passengers, 1,450 passengers per hour. So they need to be able to churn people through those airports. You need base hotels. So you need 72 base camp hotels for teams and referees, as well as four hotels per stadium location. So that means they have to have hotels for the teams themselves, for the referees, for other people. Media is going to be a big part of this, accommodating them. And then fans as well, of course. You need to be able to house those people So there's a ton of infrastructure that goes into this, and countries spend a lot, billions and billions and billions of dollars to make this happen. The figure I read from Qatar is that they will have spent $200 billion to make sure that they fit all of these accommodation boxes, they they fit all the stadium boxes. They built an entire city with the express purpose, well, at least one of the express purposes, being to host the World Cup final. So they're hosting the World Cup final in a city that did not exist back, I believe, when they won the bid. The idea is that it spent $45 billion to develop that city. Uh, They might not have enough people in the country to really justify doing that as well. So there is billions and billions of dollars being spent to do these kinds of things. There's more logistical requirements as well. There's so much that goes into planning an event of this size. But the 12 stadiums, you need the 72 base camp hotels. There's a bunch of other details, but that's a a pretty good starting place. What's the name of the city, Joe? Do you know? Is it I'm trying to find it. It is Lusail, Lusail City. I don't know exactly what the pronunciation is, but they're going to host the World Cup final, uh, and it looks nice. But if it doesn't look nice when you're building it for $45 billion, you have built it wrong. So it doesn't, it doesn't follow the usual FIFA naming convention, like how they wipe all corporate names from stadiums. <laughs> for, so, for example, the, the Allianz Arena was called FIFA World Cup Stadium Munich for the 2006 World Cup. So maybe I thought maybe Lucille was going to be called Coca-Cola City. Uh, FIFA World Cup residence or city <laughs> you, I, yes we'll I love, have to get on that i love the rule that yeah you have to wipe the stadium name unless it's a, a fifa approved sponsor and then of you're course, good to go yeah. fifa care all about growing the beautiful game definitely not about money joe uh in the the provisions for accommodation and hosting does it mention yacht hotels or a fleet of yacht hotels or is that not in the fine print Believe it or not, I didn't see that in the fine print. I whipped out my magnifying glass, but it is, it's been a weird number. I guess not a weird number, but I mean, there have been boats that are going to be involved in Qatar. There were boats that were involved back in Brazil to house people. A guy fell off a cruise ship 
in in the Brazil World Cup. I don't know if anybody remembers that. I did not know that that happened at the time. So I mean, yeah, they're they're bringing in all sorts of different methods to be able to house people because a lot of time these countries don't have the logistical infrastructure to pull this off. And it, it's difficult that they end up hosting and that they sometimes want to host. But there is all sorts of just ridiculous measures that are gone to to make sure that they check all the boxes that FIFA wants them to check. Yeah, it's worth noting the accommodation issues that in yep. particular Qatar are going to face for this World Cup. One of the reasons that we are doing our live show from Brooklyn, not not the, the whole reason, there are other factors, but one of the reasons that we won't be in Qatar is there, there's just no accommodation to go around. So um, in, the, in the 2026 World Cup bid process, which is the one that was obviously won by America, Canada, and, and Mexico. It was stipulated that each host city must have at least 14,000 hotel rooms reserved for the duration of the tournament to be used by fans. So that's not even teams and officials and, and all those guys. Um, that might have been a response to the nightmare that has unfolded in Qatar with regards to the lack of accommodation for fans. The, the 2022 World Cup starts in two months and it's still not entirely clear how so many fans are actually going to stay in Qatar. So organizers have said that there will be 130,000 rooms for fans, which is already a low number, given that other estimations say that they're expecting a million fans to visit Qatar for the World Cup. Now, Russia, Cav- Russia claimed Russia claimed 3.5 million people visited during yeah. the World Cup. So I think I think Qatar has always expected lower numbers than Russia. But let's even take them at face value of that of that one million figure, which seems conservative. You're right. Russia was three times that. But let's say it's one million, one million people. And the caveats here are obviously most people won't be staying. It's not one room to one person. You know, it'll be a number of people to to uh, to. Is it a a thousand per room? Because if so, (laughs) they're fine. Yeah. Yeah. It's like our living arrangements in Brooklyn. Yeah. (laughs) I had had water in my mouth right there and almost spit it out all over my microphone. That's good stuff. (laughs) Yeah. So they're saying 130,000 rooms for for fans. um, But other independent estimations say that that number is going to be closer to 50,000. And a good number of those 50,000, around 10,000, have still not been finished. We're in September. This World Cup kicks off. In November, um, and for some context, there was nearly forty thousand rooms in Rio de Janeiro alone when when the the, the two thousand fourteen World Cup was in Brazil. So that kind of gives you an idea of just how lacking in accommodation Qatar is, and they're trying to build these tent villages that, by the way, look dreadful. Um, kind of look like I think this might be a British thing, but high schools in Britain are all like porter cabins, and it kind of looks like where I had biology second period on a Tuesday. It does not look luxurious at all. It's very fire festival, and they drafted say, in. It sounds very fire festival yeah. to me. Yeah, and they've drafted in cruise ships which will sit in in Doha Harbor. Um, I can't imagine it's going to be a very enjoyable experience for fans at all. They're talking about that. One of the compromises is that. They're, good, they're asking fans or suggesting to fans that they can stay in Dubai or Abu Dhabi or what some of the neighboring um, countries and cities that have more hotel rooms and then fly into Qatar for games, which is just, the for me, that's like the vision of a dystopian World Cup where the games are happening in Qatar, but nobody's actually staying in Qatar. They're staying in countries around Qatar. I can't imagine that one of my favorite things, I've never been to a World Cup, but I imagine one of the best things about the World mm-hmm. Cup and one of my favorite things about watching on TV is you get a sense of place. You learn something new about a new area of the world. 
And I can't imagine you're going to get that if you're flying from Dubai into Doha for, for a game and then straight back out again. Yeah, I think that's probably fair. But for the people who do find a way, uh, to, they do find accommodation, they do make it to Qatar, or just World Cups in general, Graham, uh, what is it like for the fan and the fan experience once they're there? Because that is also a thing that has to be considered when it comes to uh, awarding uh, bids to the host nations. Yeah, so I think fans generally look for an experience that goes beyond the matches. Um, so obviously it's important that the match day experience is a is a good one, good transportation to and to and from the stadium, um, a good security process, which is perhaps particularly pertinent now after what happened at the at the the Champions League final earlier this year. Um, and you you want you know, a, a modern stadium with good sight lines. So there's faci- there's a facility aspect of it. But I, I also want that that carnival atmosphere. So that means fan zones and fan events and places where I can engage with other fans. Because as I said earlier, one of the, arguably the biggest appeal of the World Cup for me actually isn't the football side of things. It's this, it's this, uh, this collection of cultures and fans and from around the world. And so you don't just want to have a passive experience with that. You want to be involved with that in, in some place. Um, and then you also want it to, to be affordable um, for in terms of ticket prices. And this is becoming more and more of a talking point because World Cup ticket prices are getting more expensive. So the lowest ticket price for the, the 2022 World Cup is $55. But there is only a small number of Category 4 tickets available. The next step up is Category 3, funnily enough, and they're $302. Then it's $440, and then it's $618 for Category 1 tickets. And those that those 3, 2, and 1, those categories, that's the majority of the tickets for this Winter's World Cup, which means that the majority of the tickets are priced at over $300 each. That is, that's crazy. Maybe this is maybe this has been the way it is for World Cups until now, and I've just not clocked it. This is the first time that I've really clocked that until I, I started researching for this show. And when, and when you factor in that fans are already paying a fortune to get to Qatar, maybe they're not even staying in Qatar. And if you do find a hotel room in Qatar, the prices are extortionate as, for that as well. And it just says a lot about what FIFA's priorities are. Here, you're not going to get a diverse fan base, a, a, di- a diverse crowd at these World Cup games if this, if, this, if this is the sort of price point you're talking about. So I think you want it to be affordable and you want to have a good experience outside the matches is, is what you want as a fan, I think. I'm going to change the uh, the order of the show a little bit so we can try to end on a positive. We're going to talk about uh, maybe unsuccessful World Cups or World Cups that weren't hosted as well. We'll talk about ones that were, but since we're on the topic of Qatar, Joe, let's talk about if we think the 2022 will end up being a success, the 2022 iteration, that is. Uh, because my, I'll, I'll give you my perspective, and then sure. maybe we can have a, a kind of free-ranging conversation. I have a feeling that for people who end up going, end up attending those games. I think for the reasons we've talked about, I think it's going to be people with money who can afford it, who have booked accommodation, who have gotten their tickets. I think people who are there are going to say it's the best thing that ever happened. I think Qatar is going to do everything they can to have the every single piece of their infrastructure look perfect. I think the, the accommodations will end up being really good if you are there. I think because there won't be as many people attending – 
My assumption is that it will be similar to uh, what happened in South Africa where there weren't as many fans. And so it was either free tickets or, t- or tickets sold at cheap because you ended up having so many people not show up who won ticket lotteries and the like. So I think if you're there, you're going to get to go to a bunch of games. They're all going to be in, in one location. So I think people who are on the ground will have very positive things to say. But I think what that will mean is for people who are not, uh, because they don't have a ton of money or weren't able to win those lotteries or couldn't find a cruise ship hotel room, I think there's going to be a lot of negativity, even more negativity towards it than we're already seeing. I think this ends up being a World Cup that maybe is remembered for what happens on the pitch, but I think it is sort of almost forgotten. Like, maybe that's a naive thing to say about a World Cup, but I think people... Everything I've seen is sort of like, I'm excited for the World Cup. I'm not excited for Qatar to be the host. I don't know how to feel about it. I'm not sure I'll watch. And and I think people, even if they do watch, aren't going to want to celebrate this tournament as much as we often do when it comes to the World Cup. So I think it's one that will be seen as a success if you're there. FIFA will certainly tout it as a success. But I think it's one that probably won't stand the test of time. That is my, my sort of summarized feeling about the situation at present. Joe, how say you? It very much depends on your perspective coming into the World Cup, I think, as to what you'll perceive coming out of it. I think for us and for those of us that are are sort of covering this tournament, granted from from afar, but are covering this tournament and are trying to be aware of the sports washing that has occurred and a lot of the tragedy that's occurred uh, in, in Qatar as they're preparing for the World Cup with migrant workers and all sorts of other challenges. I don't think any of us and, and folks that sort of are, are coming into this tournament with a similar viewpoint are going to come out of the World Cup and, and forget those things, right? There'll be stretches where we're focused on the soccer, right? Because we will have talked about a lot of the challenges, and it's also our job to talk about the soccer. There'll be stretches of that, but coming out of the World Cup, we're still going to remember it as the time when FIFA gave the World Cup to Qatar and there were atrocities committed to make that happen. That's not going to change. People that go, some of them certainly will be troubled by that. And, and people that go also might have a great time because going to soccer games is fun. And I think there's going to be a lot of, of entertainment that happens at this tournament. That's how World Cups work. So there could very much be people who remember this World Cup fondly. I think I, I would be surprised if Qatar doesn't get out of this World Cup what they wanted to, right? Uh, of getting their name out there, getting talked about on the global stage, having people come and likely seeing a, a rise in tourism. I would be surprised if that doesn't happen. So in some ways, I think Qatar will think it's a successful World Cup. FIFA likely will as well. Others of us might not. And others of us who are still on the outside and are not associated with Qatar or FIFA might think so. I just think it is a really subjective... It's going to very much depend on your perception coming in. And I'd be kind of surprised for most folks if that changed throughout the course of the actual tournament. I made the argument for a long time that in terms of the actual hosting of the tournament... Um, I thought Qatar would host a good World Cup when they, when they talked about when they talked about we're going to have the state of the art stadiums um, and we're going to build a hundred thousand hotel rooms just because they've got so much money for a long time. I was like they'll they'll do that. They'll have no problem. And in terms of being on the ground in Qatar, if you're at that tournament, they will put on a good tournament. I'm really I'm really not so sure that that will be the case. Now, they had a test event for the Lucille Stadium, which is the 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 stadium that will host the final for this tournament. They had that test event two weeks ago, and there were a lot of problems. They had a, a lack of water, um, which I guess is maybe an easy one to solve, but it, it said to me that 
the staff in terms of people who are going to man the kiosks and things like that. Is it though? <laughs> Can you just solve that water problem really easily? Because if so, uh, then the earth is looking way better right now. <laughs> you can solve it if you've got money and just oh, buy. Oh, right, of course, yes. Yeah, and Qatar have money. So I expect there will be water at the World Cup, but they had problems with the air conditioning and getting fans in and out of the stadium and transport. Those things are a lot more difficult to solve in the space of two months because those are in- infrastructure projects. And if you've not got the infrastructure by now, then you've got a problem. Um, I also think, I've outlined this already, I think the accommodation thing could be a complete disaster. I think it could be a real defining thing about this World Cup. It's particularly when people who watch on TV, who maybe wouldn't otherwise be aware of things that are happening on the ground, they're going to see empty seats in these stadiums for the for the biggest football games you can get, the biggest soccer matches you can get at a World Cup. And they're going to find out, well, it's because there's no accommodation. Nobody can stay there. So I think that could be a defining thing about this World Cup. So as I say, I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely not so sure anymore that they will host a good tournament. I think, I think there's even a chance that you have paid seat fillers for games. And so you'll still see full stadiums, but maybe they won't be the energy you would expect from a, a World Cup game. Uh, yeah, I, 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 have, I have mixed emotions about this one, to put it lightly. Uh, let, let's talk about history, though, for a moment. Let's go negative, then let's go positive. Joe, uh, when we talk World Cups, are there any that jump out to you uh, from your research as maybe not being hosted as well or having issues with the way they were hosted? Yeah, I mean, a lot of this comes down to me for political unrest yep. in nations at the time of the World Cup. And the obvious one there, at least that stuck out to me in my research, is Argentina in 1978, right in the midst of the dirty war, military dictatorship, political opponents being killed, democracy gone, completely gone. Hosting rights have been awarded a decade earlier. And so General Jorge Rafael Videla saw it as a chance to sports wash very early on, sort of hopping on the trend way, way early, and it's atrocious. A lot of things that happened to Argentina in that stretch of time, and the fact that the World Cup was used to, to cover some of those things up, I think is is awful. And it, it's hard to read back on now, and, and obviously even harder to live through and to be around at the time. Taylor, this is, this is much more your bread and butter than it is mine in terms of the historical and geopolitical aspects. Anything else on Argentina or, or other World Cups that you felt like deserve yeah. credit, I guess, in this category? I think it was, I think it was the Argentina one where they... I, Maybe it was Brazil in 1950, but I think it was Argentina that they had, like, for the train lines, for certain sections, they walled them so you couldn't see out because they didn't want people to be able to see how bad things were or how, like, much poverty there was. And that's also where they would paint neighborhoods very pretty pastel colors uh, so that you could see them from a distance, but you didn't actually have access to them to see how bad the situation was. So there was a lot of sports washing and then almost literal whitewashing, except pastel washing, I guess, in this case. So yes, uh, Argentina is a great example of that. Uh, I mentioned it briefly there for a second. Uh, from everything I've read, the 1950 World Cup uh, hosted by Brazil, another good example of sort of chaos off the pitch bleeding into chaos on the pitch, uh, because with that being the first one after World War II, uh, you you sort of could have seen it as like, oh, there's this opportunity where everybody's kind of coming together. The world is reuniting uh, for, for sport. Uh, but because of uh, po- the post-war situations in a lot of countries, combined with erratic scheduling because you had a team playing in one part of Brazil and then a completely different part, as we did in 2014, but unlike 2014, we did not have 
quite as much infrastructure or transportation in 1950. So many nations that were going to go dropped out, including France. That left 13 teams split into four groups. Joe, would you like to guess how those were divided? Uh, <laughs> 13 teams, four groups. Not evenly. That's what I'm going to start with. Not evenly. Mm-hmm. You are correct. That's all I got. I'm going to make you go. What, what you got, Joe? Three, three, mm-hmm. three, mm-hmm. four. Uh-huh. That would make sense. You are incorrect. You had four in group one, four in group two, three in group three, and two in group four. Oh, well, What's that is con- not confusing about that No, that one. is obvious, yeah. actually. I can't believe I didn't think of that. Of course, Shoot. of course. Damn. And then the winners of each group adv- advanced to a final group where everybody played each other once, and then the team with the most points won. Uh, so there wasn't even going to be a final, except they lucked out, and the top two teams ended up playing each other last. That would be Brazil and Uruguay. Uruguay ended up winning. In Brazil, which I think put a damper on things even more so, but also the infrastructure, not very much there. The Maracanã was under construction for the duration of the tournament, which is not what you want for your major shining jewel of a stadium. So overall, I think that's another one people point to, uh, as they do 1962 in Chile, though that has to do more so with the kind of style of play, the officiating, uh, but I didn't hear as much about the infrastructure itself and that coming on the heels of a massive earthquake in 1960. I think it's a credit that they were able to host in the first place, though the games themselves maybe weren't quite as good. Uh, Graham, any other negatives that stand out to you? I've got one more, but I'd like to hear if you have any. So a recent one, Brazil 2014, Mm -hmm. was a bit of a mess in terms of corruption, a lot of scandal there, so much money being spent on new stadiums and projects when so many in the country are, are, are in poverty. And so many of those projects, the, the cost of it was inflated due to uh, suspected corruption. And, and in a lot of cases, more than suspected corruption. I think Brazil, with Lula, the, the, the president around that time, had a, had a whole kind of... Um, there was there was a cultural societal reckoning that happened with the amount of corruption that was happening in in that country at that time, and the World Cup was kind of caught up in that, and a lot of the projects were were never completed, and so yeah, as I say, not a good look for a, for a country that has problems with poverty, and that money could have been been used in so many different and better ways. Uh, I would agree with that one. I would agree with the one before it, 2010 in South Africa. I don't know if this has ever been like officially confirmed, but my assumption from people uh, who I knew who were on the ground there is that there were a lot of concerns about attendance. I think it ended up being a fairly okay attended event for a World Cup, but uh, by all accounts, it was primarily fans not from like the big European nations who traditionally populate uh, World Cup events, and so you get an even bigger crowd. So you still got a-, a plenty of people, but I think concerns about attendance, concerns about consistency of attendance for certain games led to concerns about what's the stadium going to look like? How's it going to sound? We can fill those stadiums, but we might not be able to get the atmosphere we want. So how do you cancel that out? Vuvuzelas. And that has always been my theory, that (laughs) Vuvuzelas sort of allowed them to not have the major booming crowds that you might have expected for a World Cup. Uh, But that will forever be the one where you could just hear the droning mosquitoes throughout the entirety of the game, and it really 
killed the atmosphere. It killed so much of the intensity of those games. And that will ever forever stand out there's individual moments in that one but i think the quality of play on the pitch the poor quality of the final as well didn't help so i think overall that's another one that for on-field and off-field reasons is probably not uh as well hosted as some other ones i I hope we get another uh african host who who gets maybe a bit more backing uh and is able to, to to make it work and doesn't have vuvuzelas uh so those would be some negatives joe what about positives what are some uh more positive uh host nations or Graham Graham if you want to jump in since I threw to uh, Joe last time so I've got three suggestions um so my first one is the 1994 World Cup hosted by Mm -hmm. the USA which uh, signified a a shift in the way the tournament was uh, was hosted really there was huge interest there was more focus on improving the match day experience I was reading about that until then the match day experience at a World Cup had just been a a complete afterthought. It wasn't really considered at all. And you had a total attendance of nearly 3.6 million, which remains to this day the highest in World Cup history. Um, Another suggestion would be France 98. So the the 1998 World Cup actually had some security concerns. There there were some scare stories before the start of the tournament about um, hooligans, and there were actually some uh, incidents outside stadiums. But I still think generally France put on one of the best World Cups. They had they had a good mix of traditional stadiums in big cities that had the infrastructure to handle it. They had new stadiums like the Stade de France, which was was built for the the ninety eight World Cup. Obviously, hosted the final and the, and the opening game, um, and it also helped, of course, that France had a, a cultural moment during that World Cup with the Rainbow Team, as as they ended up being called. And then the most recent one for me was. Um, Germany 2006. And of course, it's not too surprising that Germany hosted one of the best World Cups, certainly in modern times, but um, they've got good transport lengths, cheapish tickets. I found some pretty cheap tickets for, for this for this World Cup and a lot of them as well. Um, lots of fan zones, including the one at the Brandenburg Gate, which, which had space for 1 million fans. Um, I was actually reading that that fan zone is not going to happen for the Qatar World Cup because it's the middle of it that's in the in the winter, obviously. But every World Cup since the 2006 World Cup, they've had that fan zone in Berlin, um, which is pretty impressive. It's absolutely giant. And I wish I'd been old enough to go to this World Cup. It was just a few years before I'd started going to, to big football matches. I was probably going to Albion Games in 2006, I think. Um, but I wasn't traveling to go to, to yeah. football matches and I wish I'd been able to go to this one because it seemed like a, a pretty well-hosted World Cup. There were a few other ones, uh, that, like uh, European ones that I wanted to mention, but then reading about them, there was uh, a lot of fan violence and fan unrest. So one other successful one I will point to uh, is the 2002 World Cup. I don't remember J- Japan's games that they hosted as much as I remember the Korea games, uh, not just because the United States was in a group with them, but because... You got a sense of how much people cared about that team, uh, obviously helping propel them uh, to make a deep run was the intensity of that fan experience. They definitely had uh, the 12th man there. Also, maybe some favorable officiating. The less said about that, the better. Uh, again, cue the fire truck of lawyers. But th- that is one that will forever loom large as just having an incredible fan experience uh, for a person watching at home to just see how unified the Korea supporters were, uh, how loud they were, all wearing red, all having the same chance. It was uh, tremendous. So that that one, and I don't remember nearly as many like 
issues with transportation or accommodation as yeah. as we've seen with some of the more recent ones. So that's another one that I think is uh, pretty successful. Joe, any, any mm-hmm. you wanted to chime in with here? Maybe a little bit more about USA? Sure. Yeah, I think one other aspect of the U.S. hosting that 1994 World Cup was that it really did sort of kickstart yep. growth in, in soccer in the United States. And this is when a lot of people who are going to be angry that I said that are sort of getting at us. Hopefully there aren't that many of you out there. But you know, FIFA saying, yeah, you, you need a, a league, you need a top division league. And MLS stemming out from that World Cup, I think is big, right? I think it has had a tangibly positive impact on soccer in the United States. Also, plenty of negative impactful moments in, in different areas of the country. But I think soccer has grown in the U.S. even outside of 1994 as a result of some of the other things like MLS that came about from that World Cup. It really was an example, I think, of soccer catching on in a country and, and continuing to grow. Selfishly, I hope the same thing happens in, in 2026 and, and maybe not with the launching of another first division league, but just seeing soccer continue to grow in a country where it is still fighting an uphill battle against a lot of other sports that are just more established in the United States. If they don't get Diana Ross to take the penalty and the opening ceremony of the 2026 World Cup, Here. I'll be disappointed. That's the only thing I want from that tournament as a recreation. And she has to miss it as well. Or, or she, does she score it? Is it redemption? Do we want a redemption? She misses it. Oh, I see. I see. I think you meant the original one. I think here's what I say, Graham. I want Tracy Ellis Ross, Diana Ross's daughter, to take it. And I want her to just bang it top corner <laughs> yes. uh, so that it's like family redemption, yeah, like uh, but also a penalty. Joe, do you know what we're talking about? Have you seen that um, clip? No, I do not know what's going on right now. Di- Diana Ross was performing the opening ceremony. Sorry, Graham, I'm hijacking. I'll set it up. You knock it down. Uh, She was performing the opening ceremony uh, for the 94 World Cup, uh, and it it featured a lot of, uh, obviously, singing, dancing, and choreography culminating in her taking a penalty. Graham, what happened? She misses. Uh (laughs) And and the the Uh, goals goals are kind of... uh, This is the best part. Yeah, the goals kind of do this, like they split in two and then fall away. Um, yeah. they, they were meant to do that I think it was part of the show but obviously when the ball doesn't go in the middle of the goal you yeah. miss that goal and then the goal <laughs> falls apart you kind of wor- wonder what what has just happened yeah. what have we just witnessed it was definitely meant to be like she hit it so hard the goal blew apart but yeah. instead it looked like oh she missed it and also the infrastructure is crumbling that's not good <laughs> except there I think they rebutted strongly yeah right <laughs> All right, so the Ross family will get their redemption in 2026. All will be right with the world. Uh, I think all is right with this podcast. Gentlemen, thank you so much for talking all things hosting a World Cup with me today. Joe Lowry, well done to you, sir. You got it, Taylor. Right back at you. And Graham Ruffin, well done to you, sir. Thank you, Taylor Rockwell. Listeners, well done to you all for sticking with us. Thanks so much. We'll talk to you all again next week. 